I hope that this morning, uh, like every Lord's Day, we're reminded of those truths that even though the world that we see doesn't seem very subjected to Him, yet one day, and His rule shall extend over all that is. In many ways, this globe, this world, is the exception. And in this final outpost of the opposition to God and His purposes, it will finally be put to an end. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 6. Luke's Gospel, 6th chapter, starting in verse 12. Fear not, we will get to 1 Peter, but I wanted to begin with a discussion of this passage, or at least reading it. Luke 6, beginning in verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I ask that as we investigate your word today, that you would give us grace, that you would help this text encourage us, help us see clearly your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we as your people would have a more sure foundation to stand on as we leave this room, and that you would give us confidence in your word. I pray that we would understand how much you have loved and cared for us in giving us your apostles. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say again, a happy Reformation Day to you. It is a good day. It is a good thing that we remember uh, how much we have been blessed by the ministry and zeal and commitment of those who have come before. Imagining yourself in, say, early 1517, and if you wanted to have any sense of God's love for you, or any sense of your confidence or assurance that the Lord himself would forgive you on the last day, you could not, at least insofar as you listened to the church authorities that existed at the time, you could not go directly to Jesus Christ. You could not avail yourself of the mercy that is found in him alone. You had to go through different channels and different means of appropriating that grace to yourself, whether that be indulgences or prayers or service to the church or whatever else. They had no sure foundation, or the foundation in many ways had been lost, sidelined for the purposes of the Roman Catholic Church. And in dramatic fashion, the Lord, through a restoration of commitment to His Word, brought the Gospel back in ways that have not 
uh, been seen since. And in, in many ways, it has kept going. The Reformation is still going on in some ways. So as we consider our text today, and I'll, I'll read for you the first verse from Peter's letter, his first letter. As we consider these things, what it took to restore the gospel to the people of God, I want us to focus on this idea of the apostleship of Peter and the other apostles, but primarily Peter as we think through these things. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There are so many things I want to say to you about the significance of Peter's apostleship. But I want to begin with a question that may seem out of place right now, but hopefully as we develop this and understand it, hopefully you begin to see why it makes sense. Here's the question. What is preaching? What is preaching? What are we doing when we come together? You're taking time out of your schedules each and every week as a follower of Jesus Christ to come and hear a sermon. And some of you, like junkies, listen to sermons through the week. Why do you do that? Why don't you just read your Bible? What are we doing in a moment like this? What is preaching? Is it merely taking the words and telling you what they mean? Is it dressing up a motivational message with Christian truth or biblical truth? Is the aim of preaching primarily to learn? Even learn about God? Is preaching just an extended monologue about the Bible? Preaching is so many things. But I want to give you one word to help you understand what I'm thinking about and what I'm trying to do each and every Sunday when I preach to you. Here's the word. Pointing. Pointing. It's not merely explaining something. I am pointing you to something. Any good Christian preacher, if insofar as we're doing what the apostles did first, is pointing you to something. It, maybe you could say it this way. Pointing with enthusiasm. I'm saying, look, behold, cast your gaze, the eyes of your heart, on something specific. I want you to see something. And what is it that I am pointing you to? What should any Christian preacher enthusiastically point to and say, behold, look? And we have to be very clear and very careful about how we answer that question. It is not a wise way of living, it is not ideas. It is not cultural expectations or good morals. It is not theological concepts. It is not truth in general. It is not even truth about God and His works in general. What a Christian sermon is meant to point to is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And notice, it's, it's not the words themselves. It's not the syntax. And it's not even just God. It is to look through what we may call the God-ordained window of the words and teaching of Scripture to the God-ordained, God-filled, God of God, representation of God, the image of God Himself, the Lord Jesus. That's what the Bible is meant to do. 
Jesus says this of the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. They loved the Bible. They memorized it. But they didn't come to the One to whom the Scriptures pointed. The Scriptures themselves are saying, look, behold Him. And they said, no thank you. This is how uh, one theologian uses this analogy of window for the Scriptures and, and what preaching is in that context. It says this, We aim to draw our people's minds and hearts to the world of glory through the window of the Scriptures. The aim of preaching is that people experience the God-drenched reality perceived through the window of biblical words. And I would add and clarify that this God-drenched reality that he's talking about, that the window of the words of Scripture expose you to, is specifically the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So the Pharisees, they loved the Bible. They loved the words of Scripture, but they did not want to look and behold Jesus. They were, using this analogy, they were window experts. They never looked through the window or didn't care to, or they tried and they hated what they saw. So, to the believer and non-believer in this room, you need to see Jesus Christ so much. It is your most basic need. You need Him more than you need your very food. You need Him more than you need the air that you breathe. And so, it is the point or purpose of preaching to use these words and expose you, open up the window for you, in many ways, rend the sky open just like the Father did to declare that Jesus was in fact His Son of God. The the Bible does that for us each and every time that we look through the window that it creates to the person of Jesus Himself. So what does this have to do with this text in Peter's apostleship? Let's discuss Peter's apostleship and preaching's authority and purpose. So many connections could be made. One example of the connection here is, is, is the Reformation itself. We've mentioned it a lot, but we can think of the Reformation in many ways, but one of the ways to think of it is a restoration of biblical preaching. A restoration of the centrality of the Word. Here's Luther in his own words. I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The Word did it all. Also consider this. This is in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He says, in response, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every word. Scripture cannot be broken. So every single word of this book that's in your hands is a God-ordained, God-authorized window to the person of Jesus Christ. Not just the broad categories of biblical truth. Every word in its context opens a window for you to see your Messiah. Even a little word like apostle. 
These are the things. These, these little words like this. It, 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 I'm just being honest, and, and this is what you can hear in preaching, and especially if we're in a hurry to get through a book of the Bible because we're on a, a tight schedule, which I don't know. I'm, I'm not in a hurry. Uh, I'll know that. But as we read the Bible, aren't these the things we just skip over? We're like, we remember, oh yeah, Jesus called them apostles, and we just, we just get, get, me, get, get me to the meat, right? Tell me what you want to tell me, Peter. But even in a tiny detail, and you're going to see hopefully by the end of this message that the apostleship is not a tiny detail. But hopefully you can have some increased confidence in the purpose of your Bible and the purpose of preaching is to help you see through even a, a little idea like this that we, we might just call an introduction or a title is going to help you see Jesus. I want you to have confidence in every word, every nuance, even in every punctuation mark. I want you to see them as clear, perfect, and inspired windows to see your Messiah. And I want you to understand that the role of the, the apostles, specifically, is crucial to the Bible functioning that way. The reason the Bible itself is a God-ordained window to expose you to your Messiah is because apostles wrote it or authorized it. Or interpreted it in the case of the Old Testament. That's the thesis. How does the role of Peter, therefore, as an apostle, and the apostles in general, help us do this? Let me ask it another way. This is the question that I'm seeking to answer as we go through this. How can I show you, prove to you, how can I say to you, look and behold, the love and mercy and beauty and grace of Jesus Christ clothed in his gospel through this little detail of apostleship. What does it mean? Why does it matter today? And then I'm going to discuss a few objections, a few, I'm going to give you a few exhortations, and then I'll end with a few encouragements. So, the text says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Peter is an apostle? I want you to look, if you will, at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is the story where the apostles themselves in the first church gathered room before the Spirit came replaced Judas with Matthias. And the details of why and how they replaced him, the things that Peter said as they replaced him, give us an indication. They show us exactly the purpose, the unique purpose of apostleship. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Isn't it interesting that he names every single one of them? He names them in Luke, and he names them again here. Their identity is important. Their experiences are important, and we're going to see that here in a here in a bit. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So they got a group of 120 guys, and you got 11 apostles. That's a good ratio of church leadership, right? 
11 pastors, essentially, and 120 people. That'd be great. And Peter stands up and says, we need another one. I don't think it's because they're inefficient. They don't add another apostle when more than 3,000 and then 5,000 people become Christians after the gospel is preached. There's a different reason that he's appointing another apostle. Verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled when the, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. What ministry? The ministry of apostleship. There were followers of Jesus. There were the 72. There were the group of those who followed Jesus. But this ministry that he's referring to is the ministry of apostleship. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. There's a Halloween verse for you. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. It's not just a ministry. It's not just more people to help bear this burden of the leadership of the church. There is a specific office, a specific authorization that comes with the role of the apostles. So, one of the men who have accompanied us All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of those men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is called Justice, and Matthias. And I I wonder if the reason they liked Matthias more, maybe, and the reason the Holy Spirit ordained that they would choose Matthias is because we're confused as to who this other guy is. He's got three names, Joseph, Barsabbas, and Justice. Like, just to remove confusion from the equation, we'll just pick Matthias, because he doesn't have all the nicknames. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven. So, there are a few qualifications of being an apostle that we see from this passage. Number one, in this setting, for the twelve, you have to be a disciple of Jesus for his whole public ministry, beginning with the baptism of John all the way to the ascension. Number two, you have to be an eyewitness to all the events of the passion. You have to have seen him go to the cross. You have to have known at least that he was dead. You have to have connection to the fact that he was buried. And then you have to have seen him, the scars in his hands, the the wound in his side. You had to be an eyewitness to all of those things. And the two most important. Not just for the 12 and Matthias, who's the original 12th man for you college football fans, but also for Paul himself. You have to have seen the resurrected Christ. And you have to have been given by the resurrected Christ the ministry of apostleship. This is why, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, there are no more apostles. They're all dead. There is no one living today who has seen the real resurrected Christ and received the ministry of apostleship. From him specifically. So those are the qualifications of being an apostle. There's also a unique mission of being an apostle. And this is from the text as well. 
to be a witness to the resurrection. This is verse 22. One of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So it's not just that they saw it and that gives them a qualification, but that it also tells them exactly what an apostle is supposed to do. You've got to become a witness. Same word that comes later to be understood as martyr because it became so common that you witness to the resurrection of Christ at the cost of your life. This is the path. This is their mission. They're not given authority per se, but it is to be a witness to something. To look. Behold, they're doing the same thing. They're they're exposing us to this God-drenched reality in the person of Jesus Christ. That is their mission. They're to attest to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Another passage that helps us unfold what it means for these 12 to be apostles, and and a bit to to Paul as well. We won't discuss Paul's apostleship. It is a little bit different. But look at Matthew 16. I'm sorry. Yes, Matthew 16. We we discussed this last week when we uh, went through... Peter's life and talked about encouragements from his life and how Jesus used him. But look at these verses, beginning in verse 16. This is after the discussion back and forth. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And here's where it gets specific to something that he says to Peter and by implication to the twelve and not to any other Christian. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And they... And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, at least right now, until he was raised from the dead. So, he's given unique authority. The apostles themselves are given unique authority and rights. He is authorized to act on behalf of God in a special way. He's given the keys to the kingdom, as it were. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You don't have the keys. The apostles held the keys. And we are authorized to act accordingly to what they have locked and unlocked, bound and unbound, but they still hold the keys. It says this in Matthew 19, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We as Protestants have trouble with some of these verses. I think it's because we don't understand the role of the apostles, the unique role of the apostles for establishing the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There are so many implications of this, but we'll look at it a bit later. There's also unique blessings For being an apostle. The Spirit had a unique role in reminding them of all that Jesus had said. John says this, uh, records this in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There is a sense in which we as believers have some experience of this blessing as well. You get in a conversation and you just have verses of the Bible come to your mind. 
But that's because the Spirit is helping you remember something that you've already read. In this case, the the Son of God is authorizing them or explaining to them the reason that you're going to be able to write the Bible is because the Spirit Himself is going to remind you of all that I've said. They They weren't taking notes, okay? Some of you are taking notes, and I appreciate that, but the disciples, you don't have a scribe following them around. So how are they going to remember all that Jesus taught them? The Spirit is going to remind them of everything that Jesus said. So that's a unique blessing for them. They're also giving unique insight and knowledge. Consider the transition for Peter. Fearful for his life to the point of denying Christ three times. And then after the resurrection, they're still kind of huddled together. Some are doubting. And then they receive the Spirit, and they're so bold and so insightful that they debate in front of the whole Sanhedrin and they're just marveling. These are uneducated men. How is it that they have this wisdom? There are so many other things that are unique blessings for the apostles. Things that it means for them to be apostles. But we'll stick with that. It comes with unique qualifications, unique mission, unique authority and rights, and unique blessings. So why does this matter today? You might be sitting there and you're like, wow, this is not going well. I don't understand what this means for me. This seems very erudite and scholarly, but it matters so profoundly for you today. Number one, it matters because of their authority. We've already discussed a little bit about the keys. But it's funny, when you read books on church leadership and church governance, they're all stressing about who has the keys. And the Catholic answer is, of course, that the Pope has holds the keys. You can see this in the imagery regarding his office. It's, it's a, a, the symbol of two keys. Some Protestants answer by saying, well, the church now holds the keys. And what we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. But I, I think it's a very simple statement. The apostles hold the keys. They still do. And what they bound and loosed is recorded sits in your lap, and you're authorized to act in accordance with it, but you don't hold the keys. The apostles still rule, and they have delegated their authority to you through what they have written. We call it the New Testament. The example of church discipline in Corinth is helpful to see this. Paul instructs them and says, I've already given my judgment as an apostle. So you act in accordance with what I've already said. So he authorizes the church to act in accordance with his apostolic authority, not for them to just go off and do whatever they want. We could talk a lot more about that, but we need to move on. You see their authority immediately in the newly formed church. It is the first thing that Luke says in Acts chapter 2 when he begins to describe their relationship with each other. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We want to have the type of community and joy and fellowship that they seemed to have as the first church. You devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Because they are the foundation, they form the foundation of what it means to be under the authority of Christ, uniquely authorized by Christ to do this very thing in what you have in your lap. You also see this in the Jerusalem council. When Peter gives his testimony as an apostle, it's the shifting point. 
James says a few things afterwards, but, but Peter's testimony say, hey, brothers, you know that God set me apart for this purpose. And here's what God did through me as an apostle. So we have to act accordingly to this. So the apostles are still in charge through the writings of the New Testament. That's the point. And, and we could relate that to the Reformation in so many ways. And we'll, we'll discuss that in a little bit. Also, it speaks to universality. So authority is why it matters today. Universality. Here's what Lewis says. And this is through his book, uh, Screwtape Letters. If you're familiar with the Screwtape Letters, it's the hypothetical or fictional uh, letter-writing correspondence between two demons. And the older or more senior demon, Screwtape, is instructing Wormwood how to, uh, how to be a better tempter. And in the second letter, uh, he notes with great displeasure that the patient, right, the, the guy that's being tempted, has become a Christian. He says, don't worry, we still have a few things at our disposal to make him sin and maybe even fall away. And one of the things that he says is in their tool belt is the church itself. And he says that he doesn't mean the real universal church, that church spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. Universality, that we are part of one church. It's not this little congregation here in Hayden, Idaho that represents all that the church is. We're built on the foundation of the apostles of Jesus Christ Himself and His prophets who have brought to us the Word of God. We are just part of a tiny manifestation of this great church with banners unfurled, stretching from eternity to eternity, the body of Christ. That is terrifying to our enemies. So don't be discouraged when your particular iteration of the church doesn't live up to that. We're part of something bigger than us here. The apostles in their capacity as the ones that Jesus Himself authorized to have this ruling function form the common core. That shared foundation for all Christians everywhere with Christ as the cornerstone. That's the point. So here are a few examples. How do we know if a person should be in a church or outside the church based on their doctrine? In short, do they affirm the apostolic witness about Christ and the covenants that he came to inaugurate or not? Are you in line with the apostles? Here's some crazy things that some of the apostles say. John and Paul. This is John. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. He's not talking about all Christians generally there because we can say some weird stuff. He's talking about the apostles. We are from God and whoever is from God listens to us. They were self-aware of this authority that they possess to clarify what does it mean to belong to the new covenant. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You agree with the apostles? Then you're good. If not, if you disagree with them, you're out. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That is crazy. 
He's saying, you think you're spiritual? You think you have some spiritual insight? You think you're a good teacher of the Bible? You think you're a good preacher or whatever? If you don't agree with what I'm saying, and if you don't agree that it is from the Lord, you're not approved. That's exactly what he says. If anyone does not recognize this, meaning what I am saying, he is not recognized. That is them using the keys. Do you see what he's doing there? He's binding and loosing. If you agree with us, you're loosed. If you disagree with us, you're bound. Authority, universality. Thirdly, canon. We can talk a long time about uh, canon theory. It's one of my favorite subjects. And no, not canons. I know some of you teenage boys would be all in on a discussion of canons. But the word canon means list. What books do we accept? And which ones do we not accept? Right? If you watch the Discovery Channel or read uh, Wild Eyed Speculation about the formation of the Bible, that this is one of the routes that are used to try and undermine the confidence of the people of God. Well, there were other books written at the, around the same time, I mean, within a few hundred years, so why do we not listen to those? Why don't we just embrace all the testimony? In short, the answer is this. The ones the apostles wrote and the ones they authorized or approved. Those are the ones we accept because Jesus himself uniquely authorized them to do that very thing. So if the apostles didn't write it or if they didn't know about it or didn't approve it, it's out. You can see in certain places that they're self-consciously aware of this authority. You can see it in, in our text today from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He writes to people in Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia. So th- these provinces form an area larger than the state of California. And he's writing to all the Christians, some he's never met, churches he's never been to, and he is speaking authoritatively over all of them. Anyone who gets this letter is now obligated to obey it as an apostle and his writings. This is how he says it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Speaking of Paul, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them of these, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. Peter is already acknowledging that Paul, as an apostle, has unique authority to, in all his letters, write Scripture. That's profound. And understanding the grace of God towards you and the confidence that you can have in this thing that's either on the screen in your app or in your lap is so significant. It is soul-steadying that apostles of Jesus Christ authorized or wrote all of it. Also, this helps us with the covenants. There's a lot I wish I could say here, but the relationship between the two covenants is a, is a sticky theological debate that sometimes happens. But I, I want to, in some ways, just simplify it. What commands do we keep and what do we not keep? Is it by foisting an artificial category of ceremonial, sacrificial, and civil onto the text? You just can't find that in the Old Testament. We just have to interpret, well, is this command civil, ceremonial, or sacrificial? I'm not sure. It kind of blends the categories. In short, I had stuff to say here from Dr. Thomas Schreiner, but if you want that, you can come talk to me. But he says, we're not being arbitrary. We're being faithful. We're reading the Bible in light of the whole story, in light of the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. In short, this is me, 
Why can you eat bacon? And why is it okay for us to shave the edges of our beard? I did this this morning. And why is it okay to work on the Sabbath if necessary? Because the apostles tell us we're not being arbitrary. We are going to the people who are authorized uniquely by Christ, given the keys to bind and loose, and we're saying, what have they told us? Tons more that we could say there. But do you believe that their testimony is all that is profitable? This is, this is how Paul speaks of his ministry. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I told you anything that was profitable. And I think what can happen in us is we think, we get our Bible and we're like, well, surely there's more. Surely there's more I need in order for this to be profitable for every good work. And I'm saying to you, it is sufficient. You don't need grids And the teachings of other guys, we need teachers, and we'll get to that in a second, but you don't need additional data to help you know what obedience means and what it doesn't. The the apostles are authorized to tell you that very thing. Also, times more we could say. I I know that, and I know that some of you might be upset with me right now, but we have to move on. Their role as apostles unites the people of God. Uh, Again, something we could say a lot about, but how is it that we are one church now, Jew and Gentile? How do we relate the covenants together in that sense? Well, the apostles are all Jews, and they will sit on 12 thrones ruling the tribes of Israel. Their teaching as the preeminent witness to Christ shows that it is not a matter of the church replacing Israel or redefining Israel spiritually, In short, the way has been narrowed. You will either submit to the apostolic witness, you will be under Christ's rule that has been delegated to them, you will believe in the gospel that they preached as unique witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, or you will be forever cut off from the people of God. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham. If you are not under the apostles, you are out. You are bound. But you are under Christ's rule if you submit to their teaching. You are in Him, and in Him there is neither Jew nor Greek. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. So much more we could say, but we have to move on. Lastly, how does this matter today? One of the solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, or scripture alone, its point was more narrow, meaning that we have to construct our understanding of what it means to be saved through the Bible alone. We can't look to what it means to be saved from tradition or the speakings of a pope or anything like that. We have to depend on scripture alone. But there's a more fundamental issue of authority going on with the Reformation, The main point, I think, theologically, was justification by faith alone, right? We are not justified by our works. Our works do not make us acceptable to God. Christ's righteousness does on our behalf. However, how do you know? How do you know, Luther, that it is justification by faith alone? How do you know? If if you watch the documentary that I sent out, one of the things that... uh, troubled Luther and that he really had to work through was, are you alone wise? Are you saying that you're the only one that has all this together and everyone else is wrong? That the church for hundreds of years has been wrong? And here's what he said. 
at the Diet of Worms. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. In short, let's, let's say it this way. If you tell me one thing, and the apostles of Jesus Christ tell me another thing, with all due respect, I have to side with the apostles. That's the point. That is the confidence they give you in their writings. It is clear and accessible. You don't need someone else being the authority over the apostles to tell you what to think about them. We need guides. Again, we'll get to that in a minute. But you don't need another authority. Christ's gift to you is sufficient. So, I'm going to go quickly through a few objections. You may be hearing this and thinking through it, and this might cause some consternation. So here's an objection. What about the prophets? This is actually my objection to my own idea, my own sermon. So, in Ephesians 2, verse 20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what is the unique role and position of the apostles versus the prophets? I haven't worked all this out all the way, but remember the passage from 1 Corinthians 14. Whatever prophecy was in the New Testament, whoever was a prophet had to submit to the teachings of the apostles. If anyone thinks himself a prophet or spiritual, if he doesn't acknowledge what we say, he's not authorized. He's not recognized. So there's some subordination going on. And I think this is reflected in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. He says, God has appointed in the church first apostles. Second, prophets, third, teachers, and he goes on to list the spiritual gifts. So there is a primacy given to the apostles even over the prophets, whatever that meant in the New Testament. Another objection. Well, this is all great and dandy, fine, pastor, but why didn't Jesus just write his own book? Seems kind of a circuitous route to get us to the writings of the New Testament to authorize 12 guys to write stuff about what he said instead of him just writing his own book. Well, consider that it would have to touch humans' hands at some point. Even if Jesus wrote down his own book, it's got to be copied, it's got to be translated, and it's got to be transmitted, and chain of custody is in question. Who had it? For how long? Don't you realize the wisdom of God in authorizing 12 guys to write and authorize Scripture, they can't just go off on their own and do their own thing to create the church of Paul or the church of Andrew. They're all affirming their own testimony, that that which they agreed on and said, yes, this is the faithful witness. Them writing it gives us more confidence than if Jesus had picked up quill, uh, quill and ink to write even his own book. At some point, it, would, it has to be touched by human hands. People have to write it down. Another objection. This doesn't give me much confidence at all because they are still people. Or you could just think, it it could all be made up. Well, consider a few things. This, This gets a little bit into apologetics. But the witness of the apostles began, their witness to the resurrection began in the exact same place where all the events happened. If they made it up, if they were lying about the whole story, it was all about events that took place in Jerusalem. That's the basis of their appeal to many people when they preach the gospel. You're a witness to these things. You knew that he was teaching. A man attested by God and mighty works. This was not at issue. When the soldiers come back, when, when 
the, the question is not whether or not the tomb is empty. It's empty, and they try to come up with another story about it. Also, their diverse stories all coalesce. Their, their different experiences and witnesses all coalesce to give us one unified message. And also, they paid for their witness at the cost of their lives or their freedom. Consider this. If they made it up, they're really, really dumb. Because the story they made up got them all killed. We know that Caesar made it up and and played along with the story that he was a god. But it was for his benefit. You offer incense to Caesar, and you kind of have that as a marquee thing of being a Roman citizen. It benefits Caesar to say, offer incense to me and pay tribute to me, does it not? So sure, he'll make up a story or continue to believe a story that he, in his capacity as the emperor of Rome, is some sort of deity. But for the apostles to say Jesus Christ of Nazareth was raised from the dead and offers you forgiveness of sin through faith in Him, that got them all killed. There was no benefit. And Peter's denial, I think, is included in the story for this very purpose. He denies Jesus three times because he knows what the cost is going to be if he claims allegiance to Jesus. Last Objection. Aren't you just saying the same thing as that the Bible is true and trustworthy? Like, isn't, isn't this just a long description of apostleship? It, doesn't that just get us in the same place if you just say the Bible is true and trustworthy? Well, think about this. There are a lot of true and trustworthy things that I could say to you that aren't the same as the New Testament. So I could say to you, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay? Or I could say to you, in 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Uh, those are true. No error in those statements at all. But great. So what? Doesn't help me so much. My needs, my sin problem, my death problem. That doesn't tell us how to build a church. That doesn't tell us how to witness to people. That doesn't tell us how to be liberated from all the things that afflict us, the things that we couldn't be freed from the law of Moses. Jesus gives them authority, authorization, and insight to tell us what to do on Christ's behalf. The Bible is not just true and trustworthy. We've already alluded to this already. It's sufficient for you. Christ ensured that they would give to us all that we need. This means that the New Testament you hold is not just a collection of true things. That's how we can treat the Bible sometimes. It's just a collection of true sayings, good principles to live your life by. It's not just a collection of true things. All may be relatively important to live a good life, but they are exactly what you need to know to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And they are exactly what we need to know as a church insofar as we want to be faithful So I want to give you a few exhortations. Don't view your favorite teacher as the apostle of the apostles. There's a danger in this from all different theological camps that, that we can appropriate for ourselves teachers to be the ones who stand over the apostles. We need guides, again, I'll mention that in a little bit. But you can't place anybody over the apostles. Christ gave to the church first apostles. 
Then teachers, preachers, pastors, etc. It is Scripture alone. Scripture must be primary. You must be like the Bereans and judge every teacher by the teachings of the Scriptures. This is somewhat of a a side note, an exhortation on how Christ behaves with appointing 12 apostles. I want to give an exhortation to men. I know it's not Father's Day, but I can give exhortations to men, not on Father's Day. Uh, Men, act like men. Be strong. This is somewhat of a sign. I know this, but, but think about this. When the Messiah appeared, he began to build a cohort of men. And they turned the world upside down through their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And the enemy has been working around the clock ever since to make sure that he prevents men being bounded together in love, humility, and service ever since. I'm not saying anything against or... uh, undermining the the service of my sisters in Christ in this room. And actually, when all the twelve either betrayed, denied, or or abandoned Jesus, it was the women who were his followers who saw him all the way to the cross. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch or too offensive to say that if the enemy can work to ensure that we men are fearful enough, proud enough, stubborn enough, or passive enough that through those sins, he will undermine all the good work that our sisters try to do. Act like men. I know that's an aside, but I had to say it. Also, I've alluded that we needed to say this multiple times. We still need teachers. The apostles themselves told you you would need teachers. Ephesians chapter 4. We talked about this in the new members class this morning. And he gave the apostles, the teachers, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors... To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Some people get upset when we use books of other teachers. And the idea is, well, we just need the apostles. Why why are we listening to any other teachers? And my point is, we're just obeying the apostles. We're obeying the Bible in using other teachers. They told us to do that. So we're trying to not just... Read the Bible and know the Bible, but obey the Bible and take advantage of all the gifts that God has given us, including teachers, preachers, shepherds, etc. We also need triage. And I'll just run through these last exhortations quickly to get to the encouragements. We need theological triage because the apostles themselves treated different things with different levels of priority. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The word of Christ, therefore, brothers, must trump and take priority over your favorite theological subject because the apostles showed you how to do that. They prioritized the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, not your favorite tangent. And lastly, how do you approach the Bible Do you approach the Bible as something that you master? Something that you avail yourself of and that you bring your insights to and that you equip yourselves with? Or is it submission to the authority of the apostles? 
You can have a theologically accurate view of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture and have no practical outworking of your submission to it. Okay, let's go to encouragements. And here's, I guess you could say, in many ways, the main point. I want to encourage you and, and do what we talked about at the beginning. I'm, I'm trying to point you to Jesus Christ through understanding how He has established the church through the role of apostles. This is something He came up with. I'm not trying to construct this idea out of thin air and just belabor one word in Peter's letter for the sake of stretching out a series through Peter a really, really long time. This is something that He did for your good, and He did it for your good so that you would see Him. So hopefully, as we've talked to this, you can see His wisdom in establishing it this way to care for you, and so these encouragements will hopefully make that all the more clear. First, Jesus Christ died for the church and for you. And so he's going to protect the church and you. And one of the main ways that he has chosen to protect the church, to guard it against error and against false teachings that will make shipwreck of your faith, is to give you the writings of the apostles. I want you to see His love and care and compassion and gentleness towards you by, by realizing that through the blood of many witnesses, He has ensured that you have this. This is an expression of His love for you. Also, Jesus Christ loves the church and loves you, so He gives good gifts to the church and to you. Hopefully what I've done is explain to you this morning what one of the good gifts that Jesus gives to you really is. I've joked with people that, uh, so I'm from a large family, okay, so I'm one of eight, and Christmas time is chaotic, so we've started using uh, Secret Santa, you know, uh, software so that we know who we buy a gift for, so we are not buying gifts for everyone, uh, because that's insane. So I've said, maybe what I could do is just uh, set up UGMA, UTMA accounts for all of my nieces and nephews and just contribute a little bit of money to them. And, and say, my background is finance, I'm sorry. And so just give them like a statement from those accounts for Christmas. And like, I don't have to go shop. I don't have to know what their preference and likes and dislikes are. Like, here's a statement of this account I created for you. So that little niece or nephew of mine has no concept of what a UGMA, UTMA account is at all. But when they're older and they can understand, Uncle Joshua started contributing to this so that you would have funds for your education. Then hopefully they'd understand that I have love and concern and care for them that's better than another Elsa doll. I'm sorry. (laughs) So Jesus Christ has given you apostles. And I think this is a gift that he's given to us that we just walk in ignorance of. Like, okay, great, Jesus. It's like a a statement from an investment account. We have no idea the significance that it is and why he did it and the confidence that it gives us. And so I'm helping you understand, here's what he gave you. Also, this is number three of encouragements. Jesus promises to never leave us or forsake us. And one of the ways that he has communicated his enduring presence to you is through the ministry of his apostles. Their teaching as the faithful witness to the teachings of Christ communicate not just Christ's truth to you, but his presence. 
You want to meet your Messiah? Read the words of the apostles of Jesus Christ. They display the face of your Messiah as we read in 2 Corinthians 3, that there are ministers of a new covenant, the glory of the old one passing away, the glory of the new one in the face of Jesus Christ. How do you see the face of Jesus Christ? Is it by watching the Passion or the Chosen? It's by reading the words of Jesus' apostles. That's how you know your Messiah and see His face. Jesus Christ cares about the church and He cares for you. So He gives the church and you a sure foundation of confidence. We talked about this a little bit with, with Luther. Are you the only one that is wise? Do you, know, do you know how tempting it is to move off center with biblical truth nowadays? Are you sure you really know what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a, a, a contributing person to society? What does it mean to be a good citizen even? What does it mean to be a good husband, a good wife, a good father, a good son or daughter? And we're given those truths. But consider the confidence that he's given you through the writings of the apostles. Think if you were church hunting. You were looking for a new church to be a part of, and you saw that on staff you had none other than Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Philip. Would you maybe want to join that church? Would that give you confidence to go and submit yourself to their leadership and to enter into fellowship with those believers because the apostles are over this church? Do you realize that when the Bible is of central significance, it's just as good or even better? You have the full faithful witness of Jesus Christ's apostles. So when the Bible takes precedence over everything else in a church... It is as if the apostles are the pastors of that church. So that's the confidence that we can have as individuals. Also, think of this: like, do you have? We we go to all different people for different kinds of help. Help me with this. Help me with that. I've, I'm struggling in this area. I've, I'm I'm not as good a husband as I would like to be. I'm not as good of brother as I would like to be. How do I get help? Well, do you want to be counseled by uh, Peter? Uh, not, not some random Peter, like the Apostle Peter. Do you, would you want to be counseled on how to deal with your marriage from the Apostle Paul? You can have that from the Scriptures themselves. That is soul-steadying. It also gives me confidence as a, a minister. This is how one of the Reformers put it. Let the pastors boldly dare all things by the Word of God. Let them constrain all the power and glory and excellence of the world and give place to and obey the divine majesty of His Word. Let them enjoin everyone by it. From the highest to the lowest, let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the Word of God. People have wondered sometimes and even asked me, like, you know, what, what animates you? What gives you the, the zeal that you have? And I, it is not something inherent to myself. It's because I believe that I'm just acting in accordance with what the apostles have told me to do. 
because they are authorized by Christ to do that very thing. You don't have to find your center in yourself. I'm just acting in accordance with the Word of God. Also, Jesus is purifying the church for which He died. So He is ensured that the words of His apostles will endure to the end of time. Even if it gets lost and sidelined for a time, like Josiah, it will be brought back to center. And lastly, Jesus Christ made it possible for you to be redeemed by His death so He has not and will not ever leave himself without witness in this world. The world, through the guise of a false church, a false apostle called a pope, a false teacher in our own camps, or false brothers, will try to silence the message of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. But this message of forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life through trust in Jesus has been sounding forth for 2,000 years. And not as a faint echo of the original message, but the very same message from the very same ones who first preached it in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the known world. Peter, who spoke out so boldly on the day of Pentecost and so boldly in his letter to Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire, Not as a madman or a troublemaker or a philosopher or a moral or ethical teacher, but as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he proclaims that message of forgiveness of sins to you 2,000 years later. He's uniquely authorized by Christ himself, uniquely gifted by Jesus himself, uniquely suited by the Lord himself and preserved for the church forever by the Spirit of Christ himself in the words on the page resting in your laps at the cost of his life, sealing his testimony with his own profound sufferings and by his blood according to the will of Almighty God. Jesus Christ died for you almost 2,000 years ago to forgive you and give you eternal life through faith in his name. And he established his apostles to make sure that you would hear the faithful message, the faithful representation of that very message for your salvation, for your good, even your eternal good. So, all this is to say, look and behold your Messiah who has put all this into place to ensure that you, 2,000 years later, in a different continent and in a different language, would know your Messiah. I deeply desire you to be alerted to and stand in awe of the heavenly significance and eternal measure of glory that rests upon you even in this moment as you hear the words of God and see the love of Christ displayed, seeing into His heart through the window given to you in the Scriptures to see His infinite affection and loving kindness to you displayed in His establishment and authorization of His apostles. It is at work even now to bring you to himself and to refresh your sight of your Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. May we be a people who submit ourselves to what you have done through your son Jesus and recognize the confidence that can be ours as we build our lives upon their words.
that you gave to them. May we stand in the face of forces that oppose us even today. Whatever iteration they come in from a church, a minister, a preacher, a government, an official, whatever it is, give us confidence to stand on the words of God knowing that you have created them and given them to us for this very reason. Strengthen us today in Jesus' name. Amen.